everyone. Welcome to the More Than Words podcast. These are your hosts, Liz and... Shira. <laughs> you do it too, Shira. Okay, you do it too. I've, You know how many episodes I've listened to because we're editing them? And I know you're listening to them too, and I'm listening to them too. And every time, I'm like, why do we do this? What Listen, we, get, get it together. Let's, I don't like let's. it. I just, I think we should just stop intro and be like, hey, we're here. So if you don't know who we are, start <laughs> no, all the way back. No, people have to know we are, who we are. Right? No, I'm over I it. mean, you technically, you clicked on the podcast, so you should technically, know who technically, we are. Allegedly, faces, according right, to your voice. Our faces are on it. I have this new chair and it's really red. It's a I gamer it chair. You see it? It's kind of, yeah. it's a gamer chair. Anyways, Why you it like has... that? Is something wrong with? I mean, it's dope. No, it nice but music. I'm using it because it's like one of the comfiest chairs, and it has a, a footstool. Oh, that's nice. And it lays lays back. Anyways, like this a is nail not tech this... chair. Is this a nail tech chair? <laughs> 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 this is not what this. Gaming chair is built this... for working, so you better listen. I, Those gamers. Nice. I don't know yeah. any gamers, but I'm assuming making assumptions, which is bad. But I'm assuming a gamer spends a lot of time in a chair, so they yeah. must know what comfort is when it comes to chairisms. Um, this isn't what this podcast is about, y'all. And we were supposed to make the introduction very, very short because um, we have a and guest on, and I'm really excited about this guest. Um, I think I went a little bit fangirl, and I stalked, I stalked her on uh, Instagram <gasps> a lot. Yes, yes, and I am so informed, and I am ready with, okay. you'll know what I'm ready for. Anyways, uh, let's we're gonna... go to the auntie moment. Let's yeah, go to the auntie moment. And, I, and you you have the auntie moment this today. So anybody joining us, we always do an auntie moment. Auntie moments is where we discuss either hot topics, bravery, daring, bold, fearlessness, or sometimes some audacity that people have because we deal with clients all the time. So, but today is different because. So this is all encompassing, brave, bold, audacious, baby. Oh, our website is officially launched. Woo! More than words. Hit it. Mm, No, no music. Okay, my Mm. bad. Sorry, we can't afford the music, but it's okay. We can't afford. We have a music. We have a a, we have a music. Just just one music. Okay. It's a it's a a music. It's a. a. Like, anyways our website more than words pot i don't know what why am i using this highlighter i was um, about to say it's important tell it's us important. what to do direct us what we supposed to be doing <laughs> more than words podcast.com and let me tell you this is a labor of love it um and not only so many people helped get us there so for one um chris howard which everybody's heard of Chris Howard and his amazing website making skills and his amazing patience with us. For real. And his uh, logo skills. Don't, we're not supposed to tell you about the logo skills, so ignore uh, that. But, yes, not. but y'all can go ahead and message him for logos. He'll say yes. yes. Don't message him because we Tell him the auntie it. sent you. The don't auntie tell sent him. you. I don't mess it up for us. Don't mess it up. <laughs> um, also, Victoria Studio, Victoria Garcia Studios did yeah. our branding shoot. Um, Haley Ryan with Mac Ryan Studios did Come kind on, of Haley. all of our branding. She's the one that like, okay, pose like this. Okay, like do this. Okay, yeah. like the use these words here. And she kept yelling like when we were in the st- taking our brand shoots and we we're doing this. She's like, Power Woman, like you know, D- fabulous. I- fabulous I, she was like i was like am i am i all that 
Oh, oh I yes, know. I am. Meanwhile, cars passing by, people looking at us slow motion. I said, what is, I don't like the spirit of all this observation here, but she killed it. And the location she picked was amazing. Like we would have never picked those locations. If you, we'll reveal some more of the pictures that you didn't get to see, but man, I was like, this is something. I felt famous. I was like, this is what it feel like. I don't really you like looked it. looked famous. Oh my God. Well, shout out. Shout out Talk to my stylist, Chelsea. You looked amazing. And also Melodrama Boutique here in Houston, Texas is the one who uh, put gave me, those are all the clothes except for um, the Hope shirt, which is actually Chris Howard's line and brand. Um, but otherwise, man, they... I, I wouldn't have been that without those folks. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited. So please go visit our website, subscribe. Um, the Beauty Project, that's Chelsea's business. Got it, <laughs> boom. Chelsea, don't kill me. I need you, thank you. <laughs> we all need you. Please style yeah. me. Can, can I do some virtual styling? Because I definitely need it, please, thank it's you. It's going down, it's going down. Okay, so let's get to it, right? Like we have a guest. Um, we knew we were gonna have to be a little short with our uh, auntie moment today, but definitely check out our website. We are so excited. It was, to um, Liz's point, it was a labor of love, but Sometimes you just need to feel beautiful and feel like what you're doing is important. Every it, day you need it, to feel beautiful. Every yes, day. Yes. Every day. Yes. And it put the professionales on it, right? We felt professional. We was like, okay, this is official. We <laughs> no, are we not just professional, but professional. Professionales. Okay, all the S's is this. And all of the Not just uh, with one uh, music. But okay. No. <laughs> Don't judge. We're gonna get more songs for real. That was me, uh music. Listen, I'm here with you, sis. I'm not gonna let you go down by yourself. We together, we a team. Okay, so let's talk about our guests. I will say that this might be the hardest introduction I'm ever gonna have to do because this is actually my family. Like, you know, Liz is my sis, but this this person coming up is actually my bloodline, right? Like DNA certified, right? Like this is, she is your cousin, right? Like all of that. Um, but this person, when we was thinking about um, bringing on this guest, it was a couple of things that we just, really was curious about. So Liz and I have had many conversations. You've been listening to us. We've been talking about different things about, you know, just food deserts and the impacts of race in our communities. And, you know, believe it or not, sometimes where those answers are, are the people are the closest doing the work. And in this case, it was somebody closest to me. So when we start talking about <laughs> like food deserts and, you know, access and accessibility to different work, uh, we started talking about black farmers and Latino farmers in one of our episodes. And literally I said, we need to go in depth about this. And I know somebody and it just happened to be my cousin. So of course I've known her since she was born. Okay. The person you about to meet is a very ambitious person. Um, I will always say she's ahead of her years, right? Like I'm the older cousin, but technically we have the same conversation. So I don't know if that says something about me or what, but I want to say it's because she is beyond her years. Um, and also she's one of those people who cast visions, right? So when she was younger, she's gonna kill me. She was younger. She was like, um, you know, anything she set herself to say she was going to do, she did it. Um, and then right before college, she started to say, start casting visions that we had never heard of. Like, she was like, oh, I believe, and I want to understand food security. Like, our family, like, what you talking about? Like, food is secure, right? We go get it from the store. Like, we don't know what we talking about. Like, we just don't know. Uh, but she started to educate us on not only just food security, but climate change well before it started getting popular. Like, she was just always had this vision. And then she went to school to be a, the like, in theology. 
And we were like, so you gonna be a pastor preacher? We're like, how all of this stuff gonna connect? And believe it or not, she made it work, right? Faith, climate change, right? Like food security, all of these things. And now we're talking about all these things right now today. And she casted that vision many years ago and brought us up to speed. So I wanna introduce my cousin, um, Karen, who's gonna come into the show and talk to us today about really viewing food security and climate and um, through a DNI lens. So Karen, come on. I hope I didn't embarrass you because, you know, I was doing my best because I could have dropped a tear, like a tear if I had. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. And also, let me say, I went to y'all website to look at it and I was like, okay, red, like <laughs> with the red outfits. Y'all look so cute. Everybody, please go visit the website. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome to our podcast, Karen. When we had our discovery call, I was just like, tell me all about bees. I want to know about bees and farming. And like, I just want to know because I too am like very, um, I'm very conscious about what I put in my body. Um, try to be as ethical as I can be when when I'm shopping. Um, so, and, and I just always want to know like where my food comes from. Mm -hmm. um, so when Shara told me that her cousin was a beekeeper, and was was into you know was a black farmer i was like yes let's have her on and hear her story so welcome and thank you for coming on to our podcast thank you for having me i'm so excited to be able to have this conversation with you all all stuff that i'm super passionate about so always love the opportunity to talk about it well before we get into the beekeeping because obviously i'm very excited about that um you know we usually start with our diversity wheel. You know, these are the things that make up who you are and why you do things and and it changes, right? It evolves. Some of them are core and some of them change over time. But what are the kind of top three dimensions that um, are important to you in this very moment? Yeah. So when it comes to kind of what I value and who I try to be and what I would like in other people as well. There's a sense of integrity, most definitely. Um, I think part of that though, is like to get deep into my personal life, but just because of like some childhood stuff for me, it's very important that people are who they say they will be and be where they say they will be. And so, um, so integrity is very big for me. Also, I've always just been a kid who had this sense of like, fairness and this sense of like justice when it comes to stuff. And so it only became natural that I would want to like go into the policy world at some point, um, just given my interest um, pretty much all my life. And then also community. I think sometimes as an introvert, I don't always do community well because I, you know, want to be at home by myself sometimes. But um, I do value community and I see the need for it, um, especially as a BIPOC woman, I realized that it's necessary. And in order for our communities to get better, we have to move away from, you know, the individual um, mindset that I think often we've been taught in this country to have, but instead, how do we do community care? Um, it's even interesting because I was talking to someone about how they were telling me how self-care, which is such a big thing, you know, over the last few years, but self-care was actually rooted 
and black women who did it. And it was actually community care that was happening when they called it self-care when the term first got coined. And so for me, it's really a sense of community and how do we care for each other? Um, and how do we have our needs met through that community? Um, especially because sometimes the paths that we take can be so isolating. And so how do we find each other um, and be there for each other? Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my core values. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think the, one of the biggest lessons learned and, and I struggle asking for help, mm-hmm. um, as a, as a Latina woman, I struggle asking other people for help. There's trust issues and, and what I've learned and what I've opened up in the last year, year and a half is like, if you want to go further, you, you have to have a community and you have to build on it. And there, there are things that you are good at and there are things that you're bad at. And I always tend to focus on the things that I was bad at, right? So now I focus on my strengths and I reach out to my hermana over there <laughs> with, <laughs> with things that I'm not so great at, but you know what? And I've learned, you know, it's she's kind of pulled and, and evolved me as, as you know, as you well aware know how Shara works. So yeah, absolutely. So listen, yeah. first of all, I, I got the spirit. I got to say something. This is my cousin, Baba, we made it. Okay. <laughs> I had to say it. I had to say it. I'm We're on the spirit. apple. I was like, this is my, this is my family. We out here in the streets. Okay. I'm sorry. I had to get that out. I know we was getting serious, uh, but that was a proud moment. Um, so I would just say that, you know, we had an episode about self-care and it's funny Karen, that you said that it started from the origins of black women around community care, because when we had that particular conversation, I was really just at the point where I was like, as a black woman being in the household, you know, growing up at our, in our household, big family, you know, self-care, like grandma would have with us, go take a bath, go have her moment, go walk up the street to the grocery store, right? While we was at the house or something like that. And it was almost those little things. And then COVID um, and quarantine, I found myself finding those specific things. Like I needed a ton to make sure I was taking my medicine and I was getting out to walk and I you know, was doing those things that was to fill me up. But it's funny because the, the relational part of that, like what you mentioned was it did involve others. It was going to Liz's house and being at the pool and her family and coming up with this podcast. And it was reaching out to friends and family and making sure we do our prayer calls. Like it was those mm-hmm. things like, um, now that you share that with me, just brings up how deep the connectivity, right? Sometimes when it gets to the basic core of what we need kind of comes from the previous things before us. Like it's so deep in our roots, <laughs> we don't even know yeah. it's there. One of the things going back to, you know, just really around the conversation around food, right? Um, Liz often has said in our previous conversations, talked about food, food deserts. And specifically when we had, you know, um, the mass shooting that was in Buffalo that really impacted the Black community there where they had that the incident um, at their grocery store where that made a sense of loss, right? They not only lost people, but they lost um, their access to fresh food and those types for a, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was us being more newly aware of food deserts, right? Like, and I've grown up in places where I was like, I didn't know it was a food desert. I mean, 7-Eleven was enough. Like, you go get your, you know, and you wait till Saturday till you can drive out somewhere to go to the grocery store. You just get used to it, right? But can you share a little bit about what is food security or food deserts and and how does that um, impact underrepresented groups? Yeah, so food security, um, there's kind of four aspects to food security that are important. One is availability, meaning like, can food be grown? 
So all the steps that happen before it gets to the grocery store or restaurant or wherever, you know, we would consume the food. And then um, accessibility is the second part. That's where all those things happen. And that's where the conversation around food deserts happen. But it also means, can I afford the food? Is there transportation to get to the food? What are the laws or political um policies that happen that prevent me from being able to get access to the food. So that's often where those who experience hunger are really being um, boxed out of the process. Food security also includes utilization. Um, simply put, food has a purpose beyond just, you know, it has a purpose of bringing communities together, bringing families together. Um, it tastes good. There's all that. But at the end of the day, food is fuel. And so it's meant to have a purpose in the development of, you know, children. It also has the purpose of just giving us the energy we need in order to fully function. And so utilization is that nutrition side of things. And then the last is stability. And it's the sense of, can you have access to food even when a natural disaster happens, even when you have experienced job loss, any event that happens in your life, whether it be, you know, in your household or at, you know, your city, state, country, whatever the case, can you still have access to food? And if you can't, then you're food insecure. And so there's people who, for example, they have access to meals on a regular basis from, you know, maybe a soup kitchen or a food pantry. Or maybe they get public assistance, for example. Those are all great things to help keep people from being hungry, but that doesn't mean that they're food secure because if they can't guarantee that they'll have a meal, if they don't have the means to be able to put food on the table, then they're not food secure. Um, and so, and also, is it nutritious? A lot of people can get the calories that they need. That doesn't mean that they have access to fresh vegetables. And so when you talk about food deserts, that's pretty much where that conversation is, is like people do not have access to fresh groceries often. Um, Shara and I, for most of our childhoods, um, even though there's an age gap, so it wasn't always at the same time, but at, for most of our childhoods, we spent time in our grandparents' house. And thinking back to it, I would probably argue that we were food insecure. We had access to grocery store, or I'm sorry, not food insecure. We we're in a food desert. And if it wasn't for the fact that our household had access to a car, we would have been limited to the 7-Elevens, the corner stores. We would have been limited to, you know, there was one grocery store that was in our, you know, DC neighborhood. However, they would sell spoiled meat. And so it's not, it's one of those things where we did not have the access to nutritious and also not just nutritious, but safe food. And so in that respect, food deserts is really about, do people have access? Do people have the ability within a certain proximity, um, within a mall, if you live in a city of a grocery store that has fresh food that is affordable? Um, and if you're in a rural area, it may be when I think, I believe a 10 mile radius. And so these are hard conversations and We've been calling them food deserts, but more people are starting to say, don't call them food deserts because one food, a desert is an ecosystem that is natural. This is unnatural. And so people have been calling them food apartheid because just like apartheid in South Africa, for example, it's man-made, it's 
you know, there's policies, there's systems that have created this. And so when you see black and brown communities living in these food deserts, this is not natural. These are policies that are keeping us from having access to grocery stores. It is um, decisions, it is intentional that our communities have not had the same level of investment in them. And it puts so much of a strain. It causes people to have to catch multiple buses. It can take people an hour or more to be on the public transit in order to get access to fresh food. And then if your, you know, country, your corner store, your bodega has some fresh food is going to be super overpriced in comparison to what the actual grocery store would be. And so, um, you know, there's trade-offs to that as well. And so it's a huge conversation that needs to be had. Um, that's why it's important that the farm bill, for example, is coming up because every year they're trying to incentivize. I think my challenge with, um, trying to get more grocery stores into communities, my concern is always like, if you see a Whole Foods come in, you know that there's going to be displacement of that community. And so how do you do, how do you get rid of the food desert while also not getting rid of the community that's already in it? And oh so, my gosh, Karen, that, not, I won't that, go down that Because in the neighborhood where I grew up in, we used to have a market um, in Houston. And it was for um, Latino farmers to come in or people who are making you know, they would bring, they would buy stuff from Mexico and they would, they'd sell it here. And it was for the Latino community. Well, now, of course, with gentrification in that area, it it's still a market, but it has a building and it's air conditioned. And, mm -hmm. and I'm like, the, the cost of, um, we have, we call them molcajetes and they're, they're made to make salsas. Um, mm -hmm. it used to be $5. Now it's like 25 bucks. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Who's getting <laughs> the extra 20 bucks here, right? Right. And often in those markets, our stores or our businesses can't even get a table sometimes anymore. And so there's been challenges and people have called that out in DC, for example, where it's like, why, why aren't there any black businesses at these markets? Why are our applications being accepted? Like, and it's not until they're called out that it's like, oh, your business can come here now. And so sometimes it's, you know, there's, there's a sense like, yes, not only have the prices become unattainable for the communities that have been the there for decades, but often we're not getting access to the markets to begin with that are within, you know, our community. So, um, yeah, it's it's such a complicated thing of like, how do you get rid of food deserts without displacement of the people who have had to deal with that? Um, and, and and that's always been like, I, I've had this conversation with my mom um, in, in a lot of, so she is, she's from Mexico, she immigrated um, to the US. And in a lot of areas in Mexico, um, it, it many people from Europe or from the US are immigrating into these smaller towns in Mexico because the cost of living is so cheap, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, that drives the prices up for Mexican citizens, um, people who are living there. In her eyes, she will say, well, they're creating jobs and opportunities for people um, that didn't have those beforehand. But in my mind, like where I'm sitting at and I'm sitting at, I'm like, well, actually, you know, one, you're displacing people that were already living there, making it unaf unaffordable for them to live there. And also, you know, the richness of the culture, like what's happening to that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that that's kind of, 
I know everything, the, the, our world is about changing and, and evolving, but it's like, there was a rich culture there. And, and are we, you know, we think about colonization and you mentioned South Africa and like how many tribes were chopped and, and, you know, because of the apartheid in South Africa during that time. So it's like, I don't, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I'm just saying like, that's definitely, I could see it from one side and I could see it from another side. So I don't, you know. (laughs) Well, the opportunity we have is to have some accountability, right? Like there Mm -hmm. is, there is cultures in these places of displacement, right? So what are you losing to your point? It's like, whether it's a tribe in Africa or it's a neighborhood in our city, right? It is a community that has been there. And though there may be some needs for improvement, right? Those improvements could still exist if the system cared about the community that was there in the first place instead right. of the one that they're seeking to create. But that's where you get those the conversations around redlining, right? There is all in, in, in these development projects, right? The development never seems to be, let's take care of the people who are already here. It's always the plan for the people who are coming. <laughs> and so to me, it's almost those things like, let's hold people accountable. I, and, and I'll say this because, and this is a vulnerable conversation for me, which is, you know, I go back to our, our childhood home and we're lucky Uh, unlike so many people to still have our childhood home in a neighborhood in which we all grew up from, right? Like our roots are literally there. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I go back, I don't see people who understand what that community was and how it supported and nurtured a people, right? People who don't live there anymore, people who were pushed out of there and the culture in which they're getting to enjoy that neighborhood with those trees and those parks and those beautiful flowers, they were planted by the hands that no longer are there. And so those are some of those things for me that when I think about how we treat these, treat our community and treat these new developments and these pieces. It's like, it never starts at the essence of how do we want to capture what is uniquely the most valuable parts, which is the people, it's the environment, it's the feel, the vibe. Um, It's always recreating. And that's well, colonization think, in its is in its essence. Absolutely. And I think Karen mentioned something way at the beginning when she talked about her dimensions on the whole community piece, right? We have been conditioned and programmed to just think about ourselves and not have this community mindset. So how can we take a, you know, a community that is black and brown community and m- make it where it you have accessibility of food and you don't have, you know, the other thing that comes with living inside a concrete jungle and especially with climate change, and we'll get to that right now, is how hot does it get in these neighborhoods? I mean, I was reading an article about a school in Brooklyn that it got to 145 degrees at the playground at the at the elementary school. Yeah. So, you know, what are our kids doing here? You know, and they can't even play outside because there's all these like blacktop concretes everywhere. Um, and, and it's just absorbing the sun and making it even hotter and hotter. And, you know, I mean, it's how, how yeah. do we, how do we, how do we, you know, it takes the both, right? It takes that accessibility yeah. and not just in the food aspect, but also getting people and kids outside too. 
Yeah. So I think yeah. about climate change. Yeah, I think this is a good shift. Go ahead, Karen. Oh, I was just going to say, I think part of it, just like in the sense of a food apartheid where, you know, I talked about how there's policies that that was an intentional thing. There are policies that are creating this division with access to food. And the same is true when it comes to climate change. Um, there are heat zones that happen and in the same city, you know, in Manhattan, it's not that hot, I'm sure, um, for kids. And so part of it is because there was more trees. There's, um, you know, just more investments that have happened that have made life more comfortable. It's made the air cleaner, um, you know, things like that. And so in the same sense, these are all policy decisions. And many of our cities um, and neighborhoods have not been invested in for decades. And so because of that, we're now seeing the impact of it. I can't go that deep into it. Um, but like when you look at Mississippi, when you look at Baltimore and their water issues, when you look at a Flint, Michigan situation, these are all places who had not had the infrastructure invested in in the way that they should have. And so now their environments are now showing up in that way um, because it catches up eventually. And the same is true with climate change. Um, you see in so many different BIPOC communities that have been, you know, uninvested in for so many decades that their infrastructure cannot keep up with the extreme heat that's happening. They can't keep up with the extreme events that are happening. You have areas that are flooding now that weren't flooding, you know, 20 years ago. You have areas that, or if they did flood, it wasn't happening every year or multiple times a year in the way that it is. And that's because they haven't planted the trees necessary to do that. The cities have not, you know, created the infrastructure to be able to help the, um, the sewer system to be able to better, you know, absorb the water. But again, like trees, not only would it help with flooding, it would also help with the extreme heat to lower the cost. Also, we know that there's investments that could be done. Like, for example, the black tar or concrete, if you made it white or at least significantly lighter, it wouldn't absorb so much heat. So therefore, energy costs would go down in houses and buildings. And so things like that, um, and also then the buildings would be cooler. So therefore you don't have to use as much energy. And so there's just, there's really just this need to be investments. And I think part of, you know, the work in DEI anti-racism is realizing that these are all choices that have been made to not do what's needed in order to truly address this issue. And unfortunately our communities are on the front lines of climate change because of the racism that we've been experiencing for centuries in this country. And so it unfortunately, um, climate change is just compounding or multiplying the racism we're already experiencing. Um, and so it's environmental racism that causes black children to have higher rates. Um, they're twice as likely to have asthma in childhood than white children because of the air that they breathe. And so because of that, it means that when you have these extremely hot days, they're more likely to have asthma attacks. Like it's just, you know, it's one of those things where climate change is just a multiplier of what's happening. And so for some people, there will be good benefits to climate change um, as things get warmer. And for some, it's going to be deadly. And unfortunately, our community is on the front lines of the negative side of what's you know to come um, without, again, choices being made to change policies, to be able to make investments in infrastructure and other things to be more resilient and to mitigate climate change. And I think what's so interesting and why I love this conversation is because we all eat. 
right? Everybody, we all eat. And I think when we, when we talk about DEI and some people get really scared about DEI and DEI topics and having these hard conversations. And I think when we talk about food and they almost makes it accessible to everyone, you know, like that conversation where it's like, well, you eat as well. And now let's, let's relate this into something to like, give you an idea of what it's like for these communities that don't have the same privilege and accessibility as you do. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't because think many love, people think about that. Right. Yeah. Cause we love to talk about what we enjoy about it, but we don't want to talk about the challenges the ugly that we parts of it. around it. Right. Like it's okay when you, you can talk about, Oh, I love the food from your country, but what, what about that country? Right. Or what about that community in which we're not talking about? Right. Like it's, mm -hmm. I, I love commonality. I love finding commonalities with people, but once again, in this work, we have to talk about what are those differences that are yeah. are impacting us all and sometimes exploiting us, right? Like it's it's one of those things that I think without us having, the, talking about the inequities, right? That exist. I've never heard of environmental racism, but now I'm like, okay, now I'm curious. Me too, I'm adding that in my Google search earlier today. Oh so Karen, what, I mean, this is such an interesting topic. Um, what inspired you to get into climate and food security? Yeah, it's been just years of discernment for me. Um, as a person of faith, I felt this strong sense of calling instead of when I was finishing um, my last or going into my last year of college, I had the plan, like, I'm going to go to law school. You know, I even took the LSAT um, to prepare. And there was something in me that just felt like that's not right anymore. And so the summer leading into my senior year, I was just in prayer. And I just got this strong sense of like, I need to go to seminary instead. And I did that as a leap of faith, knowing that I also never felt called to being a pastor. Um, and that's something where, you know, great for those who do it, but that's just, that was never my calling. Um, and so I was in seminary just genuinely like, what the heck am I going to do with this degree? And so when I was there, I just started having these visions and dreams about having to feed people. And so then I started to feel like, okay, well, what careers does that <laughs> become like to feed people? That's, you know, not just, you know, of course there's the obvious of like, oh, run a soup kitchen or a food pantry. But then once I started doing research um, and given that I already had a policy undergrad degree, I started to think like, oh, I miss talking about social justice issues. How does this work together? And then um, the Dean of Students at that time, he was like, I have this, you know, I had already been talking to him about my interests. And he was like, I want you to go intern at this organization. And so I started to intern at a faith-based food policy organization. And it was there that was like, this is it. Like, this is exactly, you know, it was like, this wow. is it. And then I ended up going to work for the place. And when I was doing some reading um, from the um, food, FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization um, under the United Nations, they come out with a report every year. And that report was around climate change. And when I was reading it, it said that um, climate change could push over 100 million people back into extreme poverty by 2030. While I was currently working at an organization that said, we and the rest of the world are going to work towards ending hunger in the U.S. and around the world by the year 2030. And so I was like, why aren't we talking about 
climate change then. Like the very thing we're working towards ending hunger, which was possible to do at that point by 2030. Um, and then we're not talking about climate change. And it's the very thing that sounds like it will be our hurdle to get over in order to meet that goal of ending hunger by 2030. And so then that's why I was like, we need to talk about this conversation too. And so that's kind of, so it just, it took years. It took reading. It took just kind of discerning, you know, where I felt like my, my sense of purpose was, but that's kind of where I came to. And so the environmental work that I do now is an understanding that we can't end hunger without addressing what's happening with our planet. Um, the biodiversity issues, as well as climate change and the environmental um, racism that's also happening as all being contributors or keeping um, communities impoverished and in hunger. It's yeah. so interesting. First of all, let me just, for those of you like myself who was like, I ain't know this existed, raise your hand because I just feel like I need to be a community with dumb people. But this is my cousin. And I'm telling you, if she didn't tell us this, think about this. 10 years ago, somebody had this conversation with you more than 10 years at this point. This is a conversation she was having with us, and, and we sit here like, oh, um, okay. Yeah, Trust what did you think, Cheryl? Whatever, like, what did everybody think when Karen was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I have a theology degree. I'm in social justice. I'm going to feed people. I'm going to fight a lot of these big-o issues. How, how did y'all react? First of all, our family, we funny people, but we we question, right? Like, And we can give you a little bit of judgment with a face, but um, what happened was, it, when Karen mentioned this, funny story, her mom was in the room. My grandfather was in the room. Our grandfather was in the room. And we we heard her kind of talking about this. My grandfather was intently looking at Karen, kind of trying to like process what he talked about. But then all of a sudden her mom started to ask questions. Like we just started basically around a question, right? And part of it was we're trying to understand how you came about this vision, right? Like we faith people. So we got the faith under control, but it's like, what you going to do with this, right? Like, are you going to become Oprah Winfrey of like, you know, food policy? Like, and, 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 you know, we had all these, cause we're trying to pull from things we've already seen versus what her vision was well beyond what we could imagine. So this is the unimagined, right? So we just basically did what we probably do in culture. We had a lot of questions, which probably for Kara was a little annoying over time, right? Like, I, I'm figuring it out, but I'm doing this. I feel strongly in it. But we eventually turned in that moment, right? My grandpa was just kind of nodding. He was like, well, as long as you finish school, that's how granddad ended the conversation, right? Because that's important education from his generation. And then honestly, I was like, well, let me know how I can help. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'll, I can't help you because this is beyond where I've been. And I know how that feels because I've been in spaces in my life where the family was like, yeah, girl, you want to go live in Africa? Okay, well... We love you, support you, put the hands on you. We love you, but it's beyond where they can imagine where I want to go with my life. So just being supportive in that moment was what it was. But every time I came back home, I was like, so girl, what you doing with that um that theology degree and that food security and all that? Just like going down the line of things that trying to connect the dots and, and it all came about. So, so much so, oh, but ahead. so much so I will say, the 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 moment that it came about for me, even though I've been kind of hearing a little bounce, you know, every time I'm like, oh, Kara doing her thing. Okay, girl, go ahead. I know that's right. But when I saw her preach not too long ago um, at, at a church, the church was having a conversation about food security and intersectionality about um, LGBTQ plus communities. And I'm sitting here like, okay, so 
Corporate companies, we struggle with having these conversations individually. I'm sitting here in a church. By the way, it was a cathedral and it was super fly in New York City. And my cousin is literally the keynote speaker at this place or the, the guest pastor. And I'm like, there's a whole world who's able to discuss this in the most challenging and conflicting places. And we can't get it right in very sterile to some degree organizations where we can literally pick and choose what it is that we want to focus on. So it was one of those aha moments that we can do this. We're just not doing this for a reason, whatever that is, is holding us back. Well, in a lot of these communities, to your point, Cheryl, a lot of these communities have to have those conversations. So it might be a, you know, a desperation. We need to do this to, to be able to, to, to survive. But Karen, I'm curious what, what Shara said on like you being questioned by your family. What kept, what kept you going? What motivated you to just keep going at it? Yeah, I don't even know if I remember those conversations, honestly. <laughs> so maybe that minute I just didn't care that much at a certain point. Because um, I know it, some people thought it was crazy when I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to seminary. Um, one of our aunts thought I was saying I was becoming a nun. And I was like, no, I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> um, but it, it's one of those things where I feel like I just kind of got to the point where it was just like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And I'm passionate That's amazing. about it. amazing. Super care, you know, I care a lot about this. And so um, it's one of those things where I I still feel like this path is unfolding for me. And so it's so funny because I remember when I was at Michigan State, which is a, you know, a big agriculture school, I was studying policy. And I remember there was um, someone who was a friend there and he was studying agriculture when I met him. And I remember talking to some other friends and I was like, what black person studies agriculture? <laughs> like, And I, it was one of those things where I never thought I would be interested in it. And yet it's like, you know, a passion of mine to talk about these issues. And so it's one of those things where I feel like this interest is still evolving. And so I think part of it is that I'm still trying to figure out what it looks like. I think it just helps that I was able to get a job. So I'm not like, you know, some starving artist or something as I'm trying to figure out this path. So I well, think you it's are such figuring a... it out. Yeah, see, you're figuring yeah. it out because you're a beekeeper, right? Like I'm still curious about the beekeeping. Like I'll be honest with you one day, it was just on the group sex. You know what? Well, we're like, gonna do a more than words at uh, at Karen's beekeeping farm. The, I'm just saying, I'm putting me. it out there. Tell yes, you not. are. Get, you're going to get the bee outfit. To I'm allergic to oh, bees. Shoot. Okay, well, I'll uh, go. You go. Can I have a field it. trip to your bee farm, please? Absolutely. I got to get one first, but once we <laughs> do, I will. I'll get one. And also, hopefully, I have enough land so the bees can be over yes, there. Yes, we are. <laughs> this, this is going to come out, and we are. Um, one of the questions that I did have, and it, this came, the reason why... I even brought this up to share as something that I wanted to talk about was um, my husband and I recently went to California and we went to Napa Valley. And one of the things that historic, like what I think about is um, I was talking to somebody at, at a winery and um, I had given them my name. They're like, oh, you know, uh, where, where are you from? And I'm like, America. <laughs> so that whole conference, that's another topic, but that's a whole, I'm like, oh, the Davila, I said, you know, I'm first generation American. My, my parents were born in Mexico and they immigrated over to the US. Oh yeah, yeah, we, we, we love our Mexicans is what this person said. And I said, interesting. And I started thinking about the land and the people who were farming the land and I'm like, 
they're all Latinos. They're all, you know, they're black and brown people. And also this was their land to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why this really, really was something that I was really important to me because that whole reaction that I had on it. And I'm like, I want to learn more about this. So in your experience and like what you've done in this, like what, why is it important for, or I guess I should ask, you know, why is it important and why is there so, I mean, rephrase, why is it important for Black and Latino farmers to come together and join a community? And, you know, why are there so many inequities between um, white farmers and and people of color farmers? Yeah, so not to get too spiritual, but ever since I've been deeper into the environmental space, I have found it to be inherently more racist than the food policy world. And the more I think about it, I feel like, you know, America's original sin was attached to land. And so I think anytime you talk about land, there's just always this, this, you know, residue of colonization, imperialism, all those types of things in this country. And so I think it's so important for black and brown farmers to come together because there's so many inequities. Um, there was a farmer who described USDA, um, which gives so much funding and resources to farmers as the last plantation in the U.S. because so much of their policy just reinforces the racism that happens on a regular basis. And so because of that, I think it's so important that our communities come together and have discussions and also advocacy because often we're being, they have so many policies that price us, quote unquote, out of the um, process. And so one of the things that I, sorry, I have a little bit of notes for stuff. Um, in order to get a USDA policy or grant or some type of, um, you know, loan, whatever, you often have to ha have to have a minimum of whatever, you know, land. In my case, as a beekeeper, I would have to have a minimum of a certain amount of hives or something in order to qualify. In order to have a medium-sized farm, which sometimes those farms don't qualify either, a medium-sized farm is around a thousand acres or more. In order to have like a farm that qualifies, you have to have so much land. A large farm is almost 3,000 acres. The average Latino farmer has 372 acres. So their farms aren't even considered or the farms aren't even considered to be medium size. And 60% of those farmers who are Latino they have less than 50 acres. So the vast majority of people don't even have large, you know, large farms. And then the um, average black farmer has 136 acres. And so our farms are so small often in how it's counted that we don't qualify for a lot of things. And yet 
that means that we don't get the same funding as farmers. Um, there's a lot of racism that happens in the regional offices of USDA. So even though the federal agency right now may be trying to do things to make stuff more equitable when it comes to the regional offices, there's still a lot of racist practice, practices that are not being acknowledged. And so black and brown farmers, when they go to, they have to apply through the regional offices to get access, to get benefits and all that stuff, their applications get lost often. Um, it takes maybe six weeks for a white farmer to have their applications for whatever various programs they apply for to get um, approved or, you know, processed. It takes three months for a Black farmer. And so these types of things keep happening, and yet there's no accountability. And for many of us, we are the ones who have been taking care of the land, and yet we're not getting the benefits of it. Also, as we talk about the environment, our farms are actually more sustainable in practice as well. And so right now, a lot of the policies are incentivizing unsustainable practices that are just not good for the planet. And so that's also important. And I think as we talk about liberation for BIPOC communities, it has to include food sovereignty. And so this is just, you know, it's part of the larger discussion of what needs to happen. And I think if we can control the means to our food, then we can also, that will go a long way in our liberation efforts um, to be able to really, you know, have control and also access because a lot of our farmers also struggle to get their food to markets. And so they don't have food to markets, but yeah, our communities are also in food deserts who don't have access to the same markets either. It's a whole um, cycle. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so it's weird because it's like the beginning of the farm, the food process to the end of it going to the consumer, they're not able to intersect with each other. And so how are we making sure that we're addressing the hunger issues and also the lack of livelihood issue as well? And how are we also creating systems through different agencies to make sure that we're not being discriminated against um, in that same way. And so I don't know if that all makes sense, but it's- um... It makes a lot of sense. I think I think this is a good point place for us to just stop the, this conversation because I think it's this is a great point to have our audience get involved and start to assess where where are those places where they find that the resourcing is uh, most readily available and least available. And if you don't know that, get a map out, go see where your Whole Foods is, your local grocery stores are, and you go and you point, you pick a couple of neighborhoods that you're least familiar about and do some research. Because what I want to offer, at least for this conversation, is that I think this is a space for us to go be curious. And some of our curiosity is good to hear this conversation, but it's time for us to be inquisitive about these topics because they don't just impact us. It impacts so many people by us not being involved, right? And it's eventually going to impact all of us. So um, Liz, I know we're going to move to our reflection. I need to move to our reflection, but I wanted to ask Karen before we conclude is, is there anything that you're currently doing that you want to share for people to get curious about this work um, that you think would be helpful around this broad topic that we've talked about today? Yeah, so I would make the suggestion to people, if you can, because this is also very much rooted in privilege to be able to do so, but 
how can you get access to BIPOC farmers? And so are there things that you can start buying from them? It may not be everything, which granted, I really don't think we can buy everything from small farmers, but are there farmers who you can go to and maybe that's where you can buy your eggs or some of your, you know, produce, maybe it's not everything, but it's something um, to really help support smaller farmers. Um, and then for me, as someone who it was mentioned, um, I am a, bee a beekeeper and I run um, beekeeping while black in addition to my full-time job. And so part of what I'm doing right now is that I just wanted to give a representation and find community of Black beekeepers in my own journey that felt kind of isolating. And what ended up happening is that people started to come to me like, hey, I need help. I need a mentor. I need these things. And so what I have been interested in, um, especially given my you know background with food policy and different things, is like, how do I connect people to these, um, to each other? How do I find that? How do I help people to have that community? Um, how do we, you know, cope with the racism that often people are facing, Black beekeepers are facing as they try to get help but aren't getting it, you know, anything in return. And so part of what I want to do for this next year is to actually start a Black beekeeper um, mentorship program. And so one of the things that I'm hoping to do is to really connect um, new Black beekeepers keepers to each other, but then also to connect them with the actual mentor in their local area who can be with them and walk them through the process because such an important part of being a beekeeper, caring for the bees, as well as our own health is having mentorship, making sure that we have the education necessary. And so one of the things that I'm hoping to do is to get the funding needed um, because I want to make sure that in my effort to do this in a DEI way is to make sure that those mentors in particular and everyone that puts their hands on this program gets paid for it so that they're, because often Black um, farmers, Black beekeepers are not getting paid for their labor, their lived experience, their expertise. And so therefore, I want to make sure that people get access to funds so that this can just be, you know, one of multiple, you know, income sources for them, um, especially because it is a big commitment to take on um, a mentee as a beekeeper. And so I would really appreciate it if people are willing to donate to the cause. Um, you can check it out on beekeepingwhileblack.com. Um, and there you can sign up to just stay updated on the efforts that we're doing, as well as just to see how you can um, give a donation. So then that way we can um, have this thing running. I'm going to try to do it at whatever budget I can do, but the more money I can get, the far better of a program it will be in the future. So, so next year, then Karen, we're going to have you back on and we're going to be talking about this bee beekeeping farmer mentor program. Yes. Right? Y'all yes. yes. heard it first. Y'all heard it first. You coming back in this program and PS get your wallet out. Y'all donate to a lot of organizations all the time and, and y'all just get the certificate back and y'all know where your money going. She just told y'all, y'all better get y'all money, get your coins out and go ahead and support um, this effort because guess what? You'll know where it's going and it'll have an immediate return. So I don't have any closing remarks today. I'm just feeling such gratitude. One, first of all, this is my cousin, right? So I'm feeling like proud, right? This is my cousin. All right, dude, she was, you know, she was a honcho, like my grandfather says. Uh, <laughs> but this is just really one of those moments but I want to thank 
um, Karen, you coming here telling us a little bit about what this is. And I'm hoping that our audience gets super curious about this topic because there is not an end to this. This is just the beginning and we all need to start getting involved and getting informed. So Liz, close us out. Well, thank you, Karen, again, for coming on. And I want to just let every, you know, this is a difficult conversation. And I'm sure that there's a lot of feelings that came out of this conversation. Um, but we just asked, like Shara said earlier, it's hard, but like, let's grow in it. Literally grow. Literally, like a no plant. All that pun. Give them that pun, Liz. Okay, pun. That's a plant going up for those that could see YouTube, right? It's a little plant going up. I'm not involved. I'm not involved in that. I didn't know what that was. But I All thought right. she was praising them. I didn't know. <laughs> Y'all follow us on um, Instagram at More Than Words Podcast. Go and check out our website, you know, podcast, uh, more than words podcast.com. Please go follow Karen as well. Uh, when this episode airs, you'll see all of her um, different IGs and emails, accounts and websites on on the on the advertisements. So, Karen, thank you so much. Just do you have anything else that you want to close out close us out with? Um, thank you for having me. One other thing that I forgot about is that I created a directory um, for those of black beekeepers across the US. So if you want to find um, who has, you know, the drip, the local honey, then you know <laughs> where to go. So that's also on the website if you want to find the directory. Um, and I'm also one of those people now. So, so excited. I finally have um, access to honey. So yeah, but that's one other thing to do. But thank you so much for having me. It was such a robust conversation. I feel like there was so much more that could have been said, but <laughs> such a good conversation. <laughs> Follow her on IG so you can learn a lot more because I learn every day. Yes. All right, thank y'all. Have a good one. Y'all have a good day. Later.